Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. All right, Uh, so today we are continuing with our message series uh, called Creed that we have been uh, going through the last couple of weeks. Today is week three of Creed, and uh, you know this is really all about what do we believe and why does it matter? That's kind of the question that we're asking throughout this message series. What do we believe about our faith and why does it matter? Over the last 2,000 years, many have asked that same exact question and have come up with these creeds uh, to to try to help us understand some of the, the central pieces of our faith. Um, again, the definition of a creed from the Merriam-Webster's uh, Dictionary is a brief authoritative formula of religious belief or a set of fundamental beliefs. And so that's what we're doing is talking through some of these unifying statements that share what we believe about who God is and what it means to follow him. And uh, it's valuable to know what we believe because it will inform how we live. I think that's the important thing. It's not just enough for us to know what we believe. It's actually to allow it to inform the way we live our lives. And it's not just the knowledge, and this is really important. It's not just the knowledge of something, but it's the knowledge combined with God's spirit within us that has the power to work in and through us. So last week we talked about um, a very critical topic of of uh, of our beliefs, the Trinity, and that was entitled "God Three in One." And our statement of faith around the Trinity was that God has existed in relationship with Himself for all of eternity. He exists as one substance in three persons: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And although each member of the Trinity serves different functions, they each possess equal authority and power. And so last week was really about God being three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one essence, three persons, one essence, three persons. Well, today we're going to be talking about the first person in the Trinity, that's the Father. And today's message is entitled, God is great, God is good. God is great, God is good. Um, And so our statement of faith that you can find on our website, and each week I would encourage you to go to our uh, website, EncounterPGH.com, and go to the uh, What We Believe section. And in there is uh, all of these different statements of faith, as well as scripture verses that support these beliefs. And so we go through some of them uh, and others during our message today. But this is the one on the Father. God is great. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging, completely worthy of our trust, and above all, holy. It is in him that we live, move, and exist. But God is also good. He is our father. He is loving, compassionate, and faithful to his people and his promises. And today we're going to go through that, try to uh, attempt to, to take a really huge topic that is all throughout scripture and really boil it down into what we believe and why we believe it and why it matters. The father, God is great, God is good. And as I was preparing the message this week, uh, I kept thinking about the movie, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, In the movie, The Wizard of Oz, uh, there is the great and powerful Oz, right? There was actually a movie called that a few years ago, The Great 
uh, and powerful Oz. And so what we know about uh, Oz is that Dorothy and Tin Man and Scarecrow and the Lion are all on their journey to the Emerald City because they need help. Uh, and so they are told that the, the, the Wizard of Oz is able to, to help them. And so they get to the Emerald City and the wizard sends them on, a, on a, uh, a, an errand to retrieve the broomstick of the, the Wicked Witch of the West. Uh, I'm also equally surprised of how many people uh, more and more these days have not seen The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, my kids are one of them. They're, they're just, they're like, what is that? Which story was that? Um, and so hopefully you guys have, have at least understand what I'm talking about. So they, they go through, spoiler alert, after like 70 years, um, and they, they, they were able to vanquish the Wicked Witch of the West, and they return to Oz with the, with the broomstick. And uh, all of their hopes are in this one man, right? All of their hopes are in one man, but he turns out to be a fake. The great and powerful Oz turns out to be a fake. He's a huge letdown. And so I want to show you a video clip uh, from, uh, from this uh, movie, from YouTube, from The Wizard of Oz that I want to show you. And we'll take a, a quick look at it and then we'll come back here in just a moment. Let's, let's watch this video together. you told us we brought you the broomstick of the wicked witch of the west we melted her oh you liquidated her eh very resourceful yes sir so we'd like you to keep your promise to us if you please sir not so fast not so fast i'll have to give the matter a little thought go away and come back tomorrow tomorrow You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. What a horrible feeling that would be. What a terrible feeling. And, you know, I think when we think of our God, right, and we ask the question of what is he, who is he, and we say he's great and he's good, it makes us wonder, how do we know that we can trust our God? How do we know that we can trust him? Many of us uh, grew up in homes where we would pray before dinner and we would say things like, God is great, God is good, and we thank him for our food, right? We, when we say our God is great and we say he is good, what do we mean? What do we mean, Father? And how do we know that he's not a big letdown like the great and powerful Oz? And what I want to do today is I want to explore what we mean when we say God is great and God is good. What do we, what do we believe about the Father and why does it matter? 
What do we believe about the Father and why does it matter? So the words God is great, that was the beginning of our passage, right? Of our of our, uh, our our statement of faith, God is great. What do we mean by God is great? Well, let's go back to our statement. It says he is all powerful. He is all knowing, ever present, unchanging, completely worthy of our trust and above all, holy. It is in him that we live, that we move and we exist. Well, what does the Bible say about God the Father. Let's look at a passage of scripture where he talks about himself and he's introducing himself to Moses. Uh, this is in Exodus chapter three, if you guys wanna go to Exodus in the Old Testament. He appears to Moses inside of a burning bush that is not consumed, it's not burned up, uh, the power of God. And this is very uncommon because they were in the desert uh, and there were all of these bushes around that would be very brittle. And it was not uncommon for there to be like flash fires um, from the sunlight, kind of like in a lot of like we see in California. It just it's so dry. And so uh, uh, the, the heat and the sun can hit that, that sometimes there can be fires. So it was incredibly uncommon, obviously, for a bush that was brittle and dry to to have fires consume or surrounded, but not consuming it. And so God introduces himself to Moses. He tells him that he's going to use Moses to free his people in Egypt from Pharaoh. We know, many of us know the story of the Exodus story. And Moses asks God, well, who should I say sent me? Who are you? Like, who should I tell them sent me? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 God replies this, this odd statement. He says, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. The word, the phrase, I am who I am. The thing is, is that it's not, it's revealing God's name, but it's so much more than God's name. It was the personal revelation of the name of God, which is Yahweh, right? So we know that God's name is Yahweh. And so my question is, is why didn't God just say Yahweh? So when Moses goes, hey, who should I say sent me? Who should I tell them sent me? Instead of saying it was me, Yahweh, tell them Yahweh sent me. He says, I am who I am. Why did he do that? I'm going to give you a little bit of a theological lesson here, and then we're going to walk through into a little bit further of the practical side of this. The Jewish people, even the ones in captivity, already knew the name of Yahweh. He had introduced himself to Abraham uh, back in Genesis. He introduced himself as Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver your people. I will, I will give you a promised land. In verse 6 in, in, in Exodus, he says, it says, Yahweh came and appeared to Moses. And then he tells him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Moses already knew that he was Yahweh. But in this verse, he uses I am instead of his own name. But it's interesting to note that the e in Hebrew, the phrase I am is the Hebrew word eya. You guys say that, say eya. It's E-Y-E-H-Y-E-H, eya which is a different spelling from Yahweh, which is Y-H-W-H, which is Yahweh. So Ea and Yahweh. But both of them involve the consonants Y and H in exactly the same order. And Yahweh is used throughout this passage, which tells you that both of them are the name of God. I know that's really like hard, maybe deeper, hard to understand what I'm trying to say. But in this case, Ea 
I am and Yahweh, because of the way that their words are, the, the letters of how they're spelled are interchangeable with each other, they're meaning the same thing. So when he says, I am who I am, it's a play on words to say, Yahweh is Yahweh. I am who I am, but it's so much more than that. What he's doing is he's not only repeating his name, he's expressing not just who he is, but what he is, his function, his nature, his ability, his rightful place. He's saying, who sent you? Moses is saying, who sent you? Tell me who sent you. And he says, Yahweh, the great I am. And as I was studying this week, I came across a commentary called the Commentary on Holy Scriptures of Exodus. And I want to read to you uh, a piece from this that helps, uh, helps maybe describe a little bit more of the importance of what I am means. It says this, the two I ams, I am who I am. It does not I denote an identical form of existence, but the same existence in two different future times. Stick with me here. From future to future, I will be the same. The same in visiting the delivering the people of God, the faithful covenant God. And as such, I am radically different from the constant variation in the representations of gods all over the heathen nations. In other words, what he's saying is, I could tell you my name, but they already know my name. I am Yahweh. I am unique. I am unlike anything or anyone that you have ever met or ever encountered. I am all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging, completely worthy of your trust, and above all, holy. It is in me that you live, move, and exist. Tell them that's who sent you. I am. It's not just a name. It's who I am. It's what I am. I am who I am. God is great. But what is great about him? He's unique, but great. What do we know about him? What is he like? What does scripture tell us? Scripture talks a lot about who God is, the father and his ability and what he is like. It says that he is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent, which is fancy words for saying he's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's ever present. And I want to see how all three of those are exhibited in Psalm 11. Verses four through six, the psalmist is describing who God is. And we see these attributes on display in Psalm 11, verses four through six. He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch. His gaze examines everyone. You can see like he can see all. He knows all. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked. And those who love violence, and we see his power on display. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. We see that the, the all-powerful, all-knowing, and ever-present nature is part of what it means to be great, who he is. It's not just a name, Yahweh. It's what he does. It's the very essence of his being. But not only is he all-powerful, not only is he ever-present and all-knowing, he's also unchanging. It means he's the same today, yesterday, and forever, which gives him eternal perspective. He's not surprised by anything. We see that exhibited in Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he might lie, or he's not a son of a man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Or does he promise something and not fulfill? And then in James chapter 1, verse 17, every good 
and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He's all powerful. He's all knowing. He's ever present. He's unchanging in that he is reliable. And because of that, he's completely worthy of our trust. All powerful, all knowing, ever present and unchanging. Unchanging. As a kid, I used to think that meant boring. Like, what do you mean? Like, I couldn't, how could I like know someone that's the same for like all eternity? Like, it's completely boring, but it's not boring. It's actually unfathomable. There is no way for us to be able to truly know the depths of God. So when we say he's unchanging, it's true, but he is unchanging in all of the areas that matter to us. He's consistent. He is reliable. He's completely worthy of trust. And then it says, above all, he is holy. That word holy is something that we say a lot, but is hard for us, I think, to fully maybe wrap our minds around, or we're not quite sure what it might mean. The word for holy, which is, which is used all throughout scripture, is the word or concept that refers to God's power, his glory, his transcendentness, his uniqueness, his exclusiveness, his pureness, but also his dangerousness. Um, as I was doing my study, I was trying to think of how I could describe the concept of holiness. The word holy is, is, is the concept of God being the source of all life, the pureness of it, but also the dangerousness of it. And something that we could talk about would be like the sun. If we think about the sun, the sun, you could say in a way is holy. It is unique, at least in our solar system. It radiates outward. It creates life but it also destroys impurity, right? And so when God, when we say God is holy, this concept of, of him being the source of life, right? That we live and we move and exist in him, right? The concept of holiness is also that he is pure. And the closer you get to it, the more it destroys impurity. And so we see in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, where God tells his people that he is holy and then says that they are to be holy, right? So in 44, Leviticus 11, 44, for I am the Lord your God, which by the way, that word Lord there is Yahweh. Again, whenever you see in the Old Testament, the word Lord with the kind of semi-capital letters, that is God's name, Yahweh. And the reason they don't put it there is because the tradition of not including the name of God um, for out of his holiness, for out of the respect for who he is, the, the divine nature. So they changed it around to just be Lord instead of putting his name on paper, okay? So for I am the Lord your God, you must consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not defile yourselves by, swarm, by any swarming creature that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. So you must be holy because I am holy. You want to be close to me? You need to purify yourself so that you are not destroyed by my pureness, by my dangerousness. Leviticus 19.2 repeats it. So speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. It's important for us to understand that God is great, 
And part of his greatness means that there is an aspect of him that we cannot understand. And that is dangerous if we are not respectful of him. He has the ability to smite us. He has the ability to destroy us. And it's not that he wants to, but it is his nature to be his holiness, his purity. When things are wrong from us, the holiness is what is is what destroys those spaces. That's part of his all-powerfulness. That's part of his all-knowingness. He cannot not be that way. And yet he has created paths for us to be able to be close to him. He has created those ways, but he also expects us to be holy, to make decisions in our own lives that purify us so that we can come into his presence. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is ever present. He is completely worthy of our trust. He is holy. And it is in him that we live, that we move and find our being, the very fiber of our being. And all of creation finds its source in the Father. We know that because John chapter 4, verse 24 says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We are made of spirit as well. We commune with the Father through the spirit. Acts chapter 17, verse 28 says, for in him we live and in him we move and in him we have our being. And as even some of our own poets are talking to the, to the Greeks have said, for we are also his offspring. It is in God that we find our existence. Without his sustaining breath, we are nothing. We find our ability and our, uh, who we are in him. And so all of this, all of this, this that we've talked about this morning, the, his power, his authority, his sovereignty, his holiness, all of it is working together to understand that the Father is the beginning and the end of all creation. We exist because of him and through his sustaining power. God is great. He is great. And that's what we sing, the song, the great I am. The great I am. He is these things. Tell them that's who sent you. The one who has the ability and the power and the authority. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, completely worthy of trust, holy, and find our source in being in him? Why does it matter? Well, we already mentioned one of them. But because of his greatness, he is completely worthy of trust. He's worthy of trust. And he's also wholly deserving of worship. There is nothing on this earth, nothing, not a single thing on this earth that is as worthy of worship as God. And yet we find ourselves worshiping a lot of things, even inadvertently. God is great. He is worthy of our trust. And that means that even when we don't understand the actions that he has taken, that he is still worthy of trust because of his greatness. He is not the Wizard of Oz, the fake man behind a curtain. He has power and he has authority. And he is the only thing that will not fail or ever end. The only thing, our paycheck, our spouses, our houses. I'm going to ask the people in Texas right now, right? And I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a flippant way. The people all over the world who have ever suffered from disasters, who thought that what they had was reliable, and then the thing happens that causes it to show be shown as not reliable. God is reliable. He's completely worthy of trust. But he's not only great, God is also good. And this is what I love about God. So many other gods that throughout history that have been worshipped by various religions are usually one of these things. And oftentimes they're malevolent. 
But in this case, God is not only great, but he is good. God is good. He's a good God. He's a good father. He's not malevolent. He's not sinister. He's not a trickster. And he goes out of his way to show his goodness. He is our father, our our statement says. He is loving. He is compassionate. And he is faithful to his people and to his promises. He's loving. John 3.16, for God loved the world. God so loved the world. He was so full of love for the world in this way that he gave his son that everyone who believes will not perish but have eternal life. He's compassionate. He's only loving. He's compassionate. Psalm 86, verse 15. But you, Lord, are compassionate and a gracious God. You're not only loving, but you're slow to anger. And you're abounding in faithful love and truth. He's loving. He's compassionate. And he's faithful. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God, who what? Keeps his gracious covenant loyalty for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commands. You know what I loved about that movie clip that we showed earlier with the Wizard of Oz? Dorothy yells at the wizard, right? He's saying, how dare you? How dare you speak against the great and powerful Oz? And what does Dorothy say to him? If you were really great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. Oh man, when that, I was like, oh my gosh, that was so powerful. Like, like truth spoken 70, 80 years ago, however long ago that the Wizard of Oz came out. If you were really great and powerful, you would keep your promises. God is good. He is our father. He is loving, compassionate, and faithful to his people and his promises. We have talked about this so many times over and over again. It is littered throughout scripture that God is faithful. And this passage right here in Deuteronomy 7, 9 says that he is, he is gracious. He keeps his covenant loyalty for a thousand generations. A thousand generations. In other words, forever. And we see all of this wrapped up in one parable in Luke chapter 15. We're not going to read it, but it's very famous. It's the parable of the lost son, right? The parable of the lost son. We know the story, the the son of a rich man uh, grows up and says, I want my own stuff. I want what's mine. He takes his inheritance and he runs away and he squanders it. And he falls into horrible situations and, and runs back home, crawling to his father, hoping that he could just hoping that he could just be a slave in his dad's house and just get something decent to eat. And he'll never be the son again, right? Never be a son. He'll just be a slave or a servant in the house. And we know the story that the father sees him, runs to him from a ways off and welcomes him back in, clothes him again and puts a ring on his finger, restores him to his rightful place as a, as a son in the house and feeds him. We see this. And in this one parable, we see the loving compassionate and faithfulness of God. So much so that you could call this passage, not just the parable of the lost son, but the parable of the loving, compassionate, and faithful father. You could call it that if you wanted to. And we even see in Matthew chapter seven, verse 11, where Jesus is talking about the goodness of the father. And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your own kids, how much more will the father in heaven give good things to his children that he loves. God is loving. He is faithful. He is compassionate to his people and his promises. God is good. 
why does it matter that God is good? Because not only is he powerful, unfathomable, like there is an aspect to God that there is no chance that we can truly understand the depth of his greatness. But sometimes that greatness can also feel like it is impersonal, unknowable. He is all powerful, he's unfathomable, and he is sovereign. But not only is that, but he also cares about you as a single individual. Not only does God have the ability to spin the universe in his fingers, he knows you. The Bible says he knows the hair of your, on your head. He knows how many, how many of the stars are in the sky, but he also knows you intimately. He is good. And his goodness is always working all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He is great, but he is also good. God is great. God is good. The Father is great. The Father is good. One more time, our statement of faith about the Father. God is great. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing, ever-present, unchanging, completely worthy of our trust, and above all, holy. It is in Him that we live, move, and exist. But God is good. He is our Father. He is loving, compassionate, faithful to his people and his promises. God is great. God is good, completely worthy of our trust and worship. He is the great I am. Would you pray with me? Father, you are all things. You are powerful, strong, knowledgeable, sovereign, and yet you are kind, gentle, compassionate, caring, merciful. You are both. You are righteous and just. You are also gracious. I thank you for the power that you can and have displayed in my life and throughout history. But I also thank you that you are patient with me and with us. This morning as we discuss your nature as the Father, would we just be cognizant of of what your word says about you? And that we would come to grips with some of the things maybe we wonder about you. The eternal struggle of whether you are these things or not. And trying to wrap our minds around it and trust in faith and believe in faith, all of that. And we know that none of that can be answered specifically in just one morning. But we ask that you would just, again, just help us to take steps closer and closer to you so that we would know you in a deeper and more meaningful way. Reveal your greatness and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week 
but follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.